when I was trained in 2001 on how to sell a car, you know, like you literally were trained to trap people. The longer you can take, get control of your customer. That's how you'll make the most money. And that is completely the opposite now today. Now it's speed and transparency to be able to offer a product that is identified online as it is in person. They just want to sign and drive. They just want to be done. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Rick Reichardt is the president of Reichardt Automotive Group, a multi-store dealer group based out of Groveport, Ohio. He is also a marketer at heart, so this conversation was super fun for me. In this conversation, we discussed the business behind partnering with NCAA athletes, the systems he uses to manage his businesses, what's next for car subscriptions, the financials of his customs business, the shocking percentage of online sales he conducts, the issues he's seeing with respect to consumer behavior, and much more. But before we dive into the show, theft is plaguing dealerships nationwide, losing car keys is an unneeded cost, and searching for keys can lead to bottlenecks in the sales process. Keeper Systems has the solution for dealers. The Keeper MX is the number one key control solution in the auto industry, handling millions of transactions per day. It features a 16-gauge steel cabinet with a built-in camera and a puck lock for additional safety, along with many other features so that dealers can know who took a key, when, and why. Keeper Systems has been in the auto industry for over 40 years and is in over 12,000 dealerships, offering exclusive key control for six out of 10 biggest automotive groups in the world. They have a wide range of products that fit the needs of franchise dealers, independent dealers, and even the smallest pre-owned lots. New customers can take advantage of my partnership with Keeper Systems right now to receive an exclusive discount. All you need to do is visit KeeperSystems.com, click on the Car Dealership Guy link, and fill out the form to receive 25% off your first key machine purchase. Or if you prefer to call, just mention Car Dealership Guy to receive your discount. KeeperSystems.com, K-E-Y-P-E-R Systems.com. This episode is brought to you by Fullpath. Wasted data is a serious issue in automotive, but data is the key to driving revenues, which means some dealers out there are just ignoring a gold mine that is staring them in the face. Let's face it, most dealerships are completely overrun with data silos. None of the data sources are integrated with each other, leaving the data as a jumbled mess instead of a clean set that could be turning into cash. Fullpath solves this by gathering, cleaning, and sorting your data into one platform so you can use it to speak to your customers' needs with killer AI-powered marketing campaigns. My friends over at Fullpath are breaking barriers and I'm really excited to have them as a partner of the podcast. I believe in their product and more importantly, in their mission to help dealers grow. Fullpath can help you turn your data into dollars. Find them at fullpath.com. Rick, we have an issue. I just went upstairs earlier today. I'm in the kitchen and I'm, I'm over there humming a song. My wife is like, what the f*** are you singing? And I'm telling her, I don't know. I, <laughs> I pushed a button. So I see you smiling already, man. Look, I checked out your YouTube videos and I had to start this way because I was like, look, you know, you have these YouTube videos, which I was pretty blown away uh, at the quality. It's very clear why you're the one on this podcast right now, because you're very in tune with media. And dude, this commercial has like 784,000 views or something. So super impressive. Uh, you know, tell me about that. Like, you know, what got you into this to be the spokesperson, call it or media person at Rikart? Television. You know, everything has been produced for television for years. In fact, just now, in the past two years, we've really looked at our video production and said, okay, we almost need to put more emphasis on the online version than we do the television version because the lower, because the viewership's down. But that story starts many years before me. Um, in the early 80s, when uh, my father and uncle were looking at growing the brand and they had never done television or video advertising, and um, they wanted to grow. They, they had a goal to be the number one Ford dealership in the country. 
Um, we are located in Groveport, Ohio, which is southeast of Columbus. We're south of, of I-70. There's not very many car dealerships south of I-70. Most of the population, most of the you know, income that can afford new vehicles is north of I-70. Um, so they needed to use a medium that would bring people in from you know, 50 to 100 miles away. And uh, back then in the, in the 80s, television was it. There was three primary television stations. <clears throat> you could put 30-second commercials on them. <clears throat> and my, it was really my father that was the, 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 the brains and the creativity behind it all. Um, and he really didn't want to do commercials at first. He wanted to play guitar. He's a guitar player by trade. He builds guitars as a hobby. So he was just strumming a guitar and they put the camera on him and he started, um, instead of just doing regular car commercials, talking about payments, he put them into songs and he would take whatever a popular song was of the time and he would change the words and he would do a parody and that just grew and grew and grew. And of course he ended every commercial with his famous, you know, hand swing over the guitar and sang. <laughs> and, uh, it's funny because when I took over, uh, when I was, well, it'd been 2007, 2008, um, when uh, I came in and started doing the commercials regularly. That's the one thing I kept of his because my dad was like, "You need to play guitar on there. You know how to play guitar. You need to do this. You need to do that." Now, you know, I love you, Dad, but I want to be me. I want to be Rick. I don't want to act or pretend I'm anyone else. And I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to play the guitar, but I'll keep the word dealing. And so that has that has stuck. And now it gets to where. Oh, you know, I'll go out to dinner tonight with my wife and I'll, and I'll, and I'll hear, uh, you're that word dealing guy, you know, <laughs> know my name, but uh, it's stuck. So, um, so yeah, we always kind of challenge ourselves. We have these creative jam sessions with, um, a couple members of the marketing department. Uh, my sister is our director of marketing today. She's just a beast of what she does. She's awesome. Uh, Woody does our video production and works on the, um, creative side with me and we just challenge each other. Like, let's bring new ideas to the table never want to look like a car dealer on TV or on, on, on any commercials. You know, what does that mean? Just the normal, just a typical, um, you know, you, you see the canned ads that dealers buy from these companies that show in all the different markets and it's whatever the sale is, you know, it's the president's day sale this weekend. We have new Buick starting at one ninety nine a month. And just that same cadence and role just gets lost. Like you can it's do a hundred people. Oh yeah. Four different ads from different dealerships. They can't name the dealers. They just remember there were there were there were cars for sale. So to be able to get people's attention, to be able to do something different, um, especially in today's world where no one has uh, any attention span. Um, you've got you know I, I call it I call it attention span of a lizard. Yeah, yeah. it's I mean it's a goldfish world. So you got to be able to get their attention yep. in a few seconds and continue with that. And we have the pleasure of being in the biggest. Next to Austin, Texas, we're in the biggest college town in the country with Ohio State University campus, with the size of Columbus. And, you know, for years, there was a big negative for car dealers and college football players or college athletes to be able to associate with each other at all. And now with the word of, world of um, NIL, uh, I get to take the biggest influencers in the city because let's face it, like Columbus, Ohio doesn't have big million follower influencers. Like if they get like, you know, think about like Jake and Logan Paul. They're technically from Ohio, but where do they move? They went to Los Angeles because they don't stay in Ohio. So what we have is we have you know these these top level superstar athletes that have the social media followings and things, and they're recognizable. 
So now we get to do partnerships with them, use them on the commercials with me. And so wait, uh, how does this work? NIL, you referred to the fact that college students that are college athletes can now get paid, yes. right? Okay. So walk me through like logistically, how does this actually work, right? Like how do you actually get them? I know how much does this cost? So when it all started two summers ago, it was, it was three summers ago. It was the wild west and there wasn't structure behind it at all in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Now there is what are called collectives that the university has have these independent people and organizations that are basically raising money where in the past they would have, you know, boosters and these money givers and would give to the university or these private funds that would help um, within NCAA guidelines, help entice players through facilities and through food and through whatever they could give them. Um, and now that money goes into these collectives. So we have some players that are driving cars that we sign one year lease deals with that um, are being funded by the collectives. The other side of the coin is we have a specific group of players that we identify. We've built relationships with, um, I'll give you a good one, for example. So Ohio State has a quarterback named Devin Brown. And Devin Brown is uh, uh, projected to possibly be the starter. They're talking about a split role to start the season. He was a five-star guy, came on campus a little over a year ago. And I originally got introduced because his dad calls me. His dad, Andrew Brown, is actually a car dealer in Arizona. And and Devin Brown's grandfather, maybe his great-grandfather, started Brown & Brown Chevrolet in Arizona in the 1930s grew it to be the number one Chevy store in the country. Like I've heard about them. So when the dad basically calls me to just say, Hey, um, I need to ship my son's truck. He, you know, the truck's going to arrive about a week before he gets to Columbus. Um, is it okay if I ship it to you? Would you mind holding it at the dealership? And I'm like, sure. You know, you can have the truck shipped here and I'll hold the keys and give them to him. And I even asked his dad then I said, Hey, do you have any interest in this NIL stuff? His dad said, no, he hasn't, he hasn't taken a snap yet. Let him, let him, you know, figure out his role on the team first and kind of earn this um, um, NIL stuff. There's other players coming in that uh, it's part of the recruiting process now. And they're telling the university, if I'm going to commit to Ohio State, when I, when I get there, I need X amount of money and I need, I need a vehicle to drive. And so um, sometimes. So, so, so Rick, how effective is this? How effective is this from a marketing perspective? You know, it, it, I think it de- it really depends on the city. It depends on the market. And in, and in Columbus, Ohio State football is such a big thing. We don't have a pro football team here. We don't have pro basketball. We have semi-pro baseball. We have um, a professional hockey team. But it's really, it's a football state. It's a football city. And so when we have these big name, high, highly recognizable players, it creates a lot of word of mouth. And the buzz and the media and the shares on social media. And and you give them a car. They You pretty much lease them a car. Yeah. So they're driving your car. In addition to that, are you also paying them through that collective? It depends on the player. It depends on, on the, the player. So Makes some sense, of them yeah. we can negotiate, you know, we can build a relationship early. Uh, we can offer them a car and um, they don't always ask for more. There are some players who get to a level where they're getting offered six figure opportunities with apparel brands, with major yeah. companies that um, a car would be nice, but they have the right to ask for some money along with the car. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of fewer. That's why it's from you know building that relationship, meeting meeting the players when they're younger, knowing who they are, 
and being able to, you know, establish that there's not usually money that's transferred from you to that. Well, if you go through a collective or you go through an agent, there's a middleman that's that wants paid. They don't benefit at all from that player signing a one year lease on the car because there's no money exchanged. That sometimes makes it a little more difficult. So we we prefer to work directly with the players, uh, directly with their parents. And ninety five. Oh, that's cool. Workshop works out really well. How much of your week do you spend on marketing creative? I I just again just comparing you to you know other dealer groups. I definitely noticed just like a higher or greater velocity of creative efforts. Call it whatever you want. You know you have your like you had this like YouTube series around interns. Um, you had, you know, these commercials that are, you could tell they're well and professionally produced. Um, everything you're telling me now, you know, NIL influencers, you're spending a lot of time on the media side marketing. How much of your week is this, you know? Um, probably 50%. And when I think wow. of your creativity, it's, it's beyond just video marketing. It's, um, it's culture, it's vision. It's, um, you know, cause these- what specifically, what specifically though, like when you say culture and vision. And I ask, you know, like a lot of people just, you know, say culture, vision, but I'm curious, like, you know, you're clearly creative. Like what, how does that manifest in the culture of the company? So all marketing starts internal. The things we produce, the things we put out, we involve employees. They know what we're doing. If we have Ohio State superstars showing up here to film a commercial one day, uh, we allow our, you know, the, the, if the employees want to walk up and get a uh, autograph or, you know, get a selfie with them, um, we encourage those things. We want them to be the people that are, that that really share and look for the stuff to come. So every, every, everything starts with school. And actually, I'll take it another step. So you mentioned what percent of my week is spent on, we'll call it creativity. I'll just use the word marketing. The great Peter Drucker, author, business, motivational speaker, he once said, the only two things that make money in a company is innovation and marketing. So I spend 99% of my time on innovation and marketing just so happens they overlap in so many ways. And we want to innovate the workforce constantly. We want to improve our culture because it's harder than ever to, you know, find great people that are willing to be paid uh, a market price salary for um, example. So I would rather pay people more and have less people, but have a great culture, that, that teamwork, that bond, that level of communication that everyone knows what's going on around here all the time. And so, when I say marketing starts internal, we put out quarterly kind of state of the company newsletter videos. We have employee events often. Um, I spend about six to eight hours a week doing what I call intentional MBWA. And MBWA stands for management by wandering around. Um, and it's Oh, I like those, that. I haven't heard that before. And it's one of those things that, you know, I want to get out. I want to say hi to people. I want to see what's going on, what's making them tick, where, where they're uh, troubles are what they did with the weekend, how their how their kids are doing, and by and if I sit in this office and bury myself in reports and paperwork and reading articles and looking at financial statements all day, uh, I'm not paying attention to our number one asset, which is our people. Mm -hmm. And to really have that team people focused uh, uh, mentality takes a lot of innovation today, because you know you can you can give 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 to employees, but not always get the buy-in and that that team-focused family atmosphere that uh, really, at the end of the day, that's what our customers are going to feel. So that emotion they get from me, that level of uh, feeling connected to the family. And when I say family, I'm lucky because my cousin Jared is my partner. Um, 
he's uh the co co co-president and uh he's really like the chief operating officer where i call myself we run the eos operating system yeah g- give us like a 30 second overview for those that don't know about eos you know just great topic for anyone in business yeah and this is a quick tangent because when my uncle decided to step away from the day-to-day operations and get deep into nada when he started running for the national level positions he kind of just handed the steering wheel over to us and said okay you guys go run this company there's two of us and we started separating things we started thinking okay i'll run sales you run service and fixed ops and then we then uh that was creating some issues so then we decided i'll i'll run all of retail and you run all of fleet and commercial and wholesale and business to business stuff that created some things and then when we found out about this eos business model where there's two people at the top that fall into the visionary and the integrator role, it really helped define our roles and be able to take what we were both good at and focus on those things. My cousin Jared's extremely regimented. I mean, I'll I'll wake up in the morning. I don't always set an alarm clock, but I've got emails coming in from him starting at 5.15 in the morning. And he used to show up at 6.30 and unlock the gates every morning working through the service department and fix up. So his consistency and his regimen and his routine is really good for someone that at the end of the day is responsible to make sure the trains run on time. And at the end of the day, whether it's uh, what time we open, um, all of the little details to the profit and loss of the company, that's his responsibility where I get to focus on the vision of the future, working on the business instead of in the business, working on acquisitions, and what I call GED, which is grow, expand, and diversify. So my role every day is to try to grow our current operations. Can we get more sales out of this place? Can we get more service? Um, what do we need to grow what we currently have? Identify mm-hmm. expansion. What brands don't we carry? Where do we need to expand? Where do we need to grow? And then diversification, because being able to invest in some things outside of the direct automotive retail world to kind of hedge our bet for the future because there's not a, there's not, you know, a proven path that franchise car dealerships are going to look the same in 50 years. I mean, we're almost all know it's going to dramatically change. We're not sure what that's going to look like, but we have to be prepared. So whether it's investing in some automotive software, because, you know, we knew years ago that digital retail was coming. So we partnered with the digital retailing company to even things like getting in the world of motorcycles. So they have two wheels, they're vehicles, it's transportation, but it's also a lifestyle brand. It's a premium brand. And we have a lot of crossover within our database uh, because living in Southern Ohio, it's kind of the dream of most men and most middle-aged men in Southern Ohio to have a, a, a F-150 and a Harley Davidson <laughs> in their garage. So if we already have this book of business on F-150 owners and now Silverado owners and Bronco owners, we can kind of work uh, on the Harley okay. Davidson side. I Plus having the lifestyle brands, whether it's Harley Davidson or whether it's Rabbit Customs, and we have a custom shop that's been doing a lot of upfits, doing Mustangs, Camaros, Broncos, Wranglers, as well as uh, restoring classics and hot rods and things like that. Uh, we've done a lot of event-based marketing because of those things. And so you're, of, you're, you know, I just want to stop for a second. You're hitting on a, a lot of really great points here that I want to talk about. You, you, know, you mentioned the changing car business. You mentioned software that you're investing in. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your all these adjacent businesses, which I was I was pretty. I mean, I just found it intriguing when I was you know doing my research, and I was like, wow, 
Rob, you do, you have a customs business, you have a motorcycle, you know, Harley Davidson business, you have all these other businesses, which, you know, it's, it's a bit of a unique model where many dealers I'm speaking with are sort of focusing on dealerships, solely dealerships going deeper. And again, there's more than one way to the top. I found this very interesting. Walk us through the, the calculus there. When did you start adding all these adjacent business units and why, why go horizontal, right? Meaning why try to sell, you know, complementary products, services, whatever, uh, to your current client base, as opposed to continue just expanding the current footprint based on what you're already doing, which is a dealership selling cars. Yeah, this is all, I mean, I got to take you back to 2019 because to me, what's happened between February of 2020 and today is a complete anomaly. And we're going to be able to cut that section of history out. And it's because it throws everything off. I mean, look at even the buy-sell business today. The way that dealerships are being evaluated, like you're not including the past three years to create a three-year multiple. You know, it's just not going to happen because things were just so different. So I have to think again, like it's 2019 and it started about eight months ago to where, you know, our margins are starting to normalize. They have normalized many of our brands. And when you look back pre pre-pandemic, we had an affordability issue in the industry. New vehicles were getting too expensive. Um, <laughs> we also have this transparent marketplace where if someone's shopping and they really want to find out what the invoice is of a new car, it's, it's, it's on the internet. And I watch people come in the showroom and negotiate down to where, you know, they're buying a Mustang GT for, you know, a hundred dollars over invoice. Um, and they take delivery. And then I see the car three months later, with lowered and wheels and tires and exhaust systems, because that's the lifestyle side that they're not going in and negotiating to find out what the invoice was on the exhaust system, something they want to do. So being able to capture more of that, being able to find those additional profit centers. I love that. Take the aftermarket accessory world to another level, be able to do bolt-on performance, dyno, dyno tuning, lift kits, and be able to offer all of those, and I'd say ancillary, but they're really you know, lifestyle or their choices, you know, all somebody, and, and it seems like emotional decisions, yeah. emotional decisions potentially that are also Emotion, much, all, they make irrational yeah. decisions. So the mm -hmm. marketing and the emotion and the lifestyle brands kind of create this form of energy that takes us beyond just a, a car dealership. Um, and if you think about the world of social media, we were trying, you know, the first few years of social media coming out, you know, how many, how many followers can Reichert Ford get, right? Let's just pull this one building out and see how we can, can build it up. Well, there's nine other Ford dealers in town. They actually have the same vehicles on their lot for sale that we do. So to be able to differentiate ourselves and there's, let's just face it, there's nothing cool about a car dealership. You know, every now and then some new limited edition model will, will come in and someone will go to a dealership to check out that car because the car is cool. There's, but the dealership's not cool. Is so it? to be able to take like the Rabbit Customs and the Pharaoh Harley Davidson and be able to tie in some of these other factors also shows the personality of the brand and the family. Um, I'm not just a Harley dealer. I ride. I just got back from Colorado. I spent a week in the mountains on my bike. And it allows people to connect with us more too on their level. It just seems like the new car is so commoditized, right? Yeah. And then when you look at, you said like customs, these types of things, 
you're right. It's a, it's a line of business or profit center. That's very, you know, it's like a lifestyle profit center complementary to your current customer base to a certain extent. And, you know, I would, I would have to assume a lot less commoditized. Like what, what are the average margins on that type of business? The custom shop stuff. I mean, it's, it's a lot like the apparel world. I mean, there's a lot of those uh, you know, parts that there's still 40, 50% markup. There is obviously the labor rate on those things. I mean, labor rates everywhere are high and they should be because technicians are the most valuable commodity. Being able to recruit, develop, train techs, be able to have enough techs to satisfy just the retail business um, and then be able to take these specialized technicians and put them in that department. Um, they're not asking for less money, you know, so you got to be able to pay the tech. So the labor rates are strong. And when someone has a, a vehicle that they are emotional about, that they're attached to, that they want to customize to make it to make it their their own, and there's not another one like it, uh, the money becomes less of a factor. And so, you know, there's not, there's, there, there, you know, people don't ask for discounts. They're not, um, there's there's nowhere to go shop that price. Um, so all those yep. kind of factors. And how did you get that started? Um, how did you get that business started? I mean, did you, you know, hire like a GM to get it kicked off or what was the story behind that? No, actually the story, uh, the true story is I met a guy that, um, I built a motorcycle together with, and I found out through talking to him that he had built some cars in his past, I mean, a body shop at one point, but he was an incredible engine builder and he was a fantastic painter. And I usually don't find those two traits in one person. And he really was an artist who could do anything with metal and paint and engines. And then we, at the same time, we had a technician working for us that had been here, I want to say 38 years at the time. He had a very close relationship with my uncle and we have a small collection of cars. So we've got some uh, early mid sixties Ford performance drag cars, some Ford GTs, some other um, just kind of cool old Ford Chevys and stuff that we've kept over the years. And we like to actually drive them and use the cars. So my uncle came to me with an idea of why don't we take this technician that's worked here a long time. He doesn't want to be turning the hours like he used to. He's okay with a salary. I'm going to put him in a building and just have him work on the collector cars. Just do the maintenance of our own kind of family collection. Is it? Oh, I can't pencil that and have it make any sense. Like, wait a minute, we're going to just pay somebody to, <laughs> or about your stuff. Okay. I got another idea. I wanted to introduce you to Mike, this tech that I that had a custom motorcycle shop who knows how to work on cars. And let's take the two of them and they can work on your old cars, but now we can start to advertise and let people bring in some of their collector cars and their hot rods and their muscle cars. Um, because we saw a need in Central Ohio. There wasn't any one shop that could do everything. That you could bring in a car and say, I want to resto mod this car, or I just want to do maintenance and tune up, or I need some paint and body work. Like there wasn't anybody that could really do it all. So we we started with that stuff. Um, found out rather quickly that's a very challenging business because the time it takes to do those builds, um, when you put in the manpower and all the other expenses, we knew we had to kind of leverage that with the late model stuff. And the late model stuff that's built after 2000 that you can pull a supercharger on and tune it, or you can do wheels and tires or lift kits or whatever that looks like, um, are billable hours. It's more run like a traditional service department. 
And those things kind of help pay the bills. And then when the bigger projects and the fun custom stuff is done, it almost creates more of a marketing buzz than it does mm-hmm. an actual profitable side of the business. Do you have aspirations to scale significantly beyond Ohio? Or are you just, are you, you know, really content with kind of being the, the leader in Ohio and just kind of want to go deeper in that state? No, I think that's an option for, for um, the future. We're wanting to get a little deeper in, in central Ohio before we make any of those moves. Um, in my opinion, we have a couple of brands that we need to go key in on. Um, the fastest growing division by far the past eight years has been our fleet and commercial division. And uh, we have really good market share when it comes to Ford in the in the in the fleet and commercial world. What are margins on that? Like, walk me through some fleet business margins. Like, how does that work? Um, the fleet, you know, is interesting. Through through the pandemic, the margins were in line with where the new retail was. I mean, the you know, margins were based on where they were before. They they grew exponentially. It's usually not a high margin business. It's a high volume business. And when you get you know orders of two to three hundred transit vans at a time, um, or F fifty nine bread trucks for FedEx or something, it's not as much per unit, but you get a lot of units in one shot. Yeah, the money I has made more in the service department. So we built one hundred and thirteen. I didn't build. We converted a former direct mail company, which obviously direct mail went away years ago. Happened to be one across the street from us. 113,000 square feet, and we converted that to fleet and commercial sales and service, as well as wholesale parts. And really, the 60,000 square feet of the service department is where it really shines because there's 44 uh, heavy, heavy bays in there. And we've got a team of technicians, and we've been grooming and training, recruiting, developing for years. And uh, that's really where the advantage comes from because now, now with the world of pickup and delivery, mobile service. We have five fleet mobile service trucks on the road every day, just going to job sites, doing maintenance, recalls, repairs, uh, warranty work off site. Um, and that really is what, is what creates the loyalty with the customer to come back and keep buying from us. So I'd imagine though, I'd imagine for the fleet business, it's also in a way like an, just an easier sale, right? Because you're not, it's not like a potentially like, you know, a, a consumer, again, an emotional decision. It's, it's a business. Hey, you know, this isn't, this needs to be done. Let's get it done. You're shaking your head. How do you feel about that? Well, I love it. Cause I've never produced a song and dance commercial to entice business owners to come and buy. <laughs> that's, all that's a good retail, one. That's all for retail consumers. Uh, yeah. Now, do they see that stuff? Does it help top of mind name brand? They know the right name. They know what we're about. Um, and even the fleet customers are hoping that they have an enjoyable experience, something with some energy behind it in theater, rather than you know a lot of a lot of places you go see their fleet manager and it's an office in the back. And no, we want to we want to keep the culture and the theme, yeah. the feeling going. What percent? What percent of your business, roughly speaking, would you say fleet comprises of? Uh, so when it comes to trucks, so we made this decision. I think it was it was 2017, and I was sitting in a 20 grid meeting, and it was towards the end of the summer. No, it was a June meeting. We're using a May composite, and somebody said something about fleet sales, and I made a comment in the meeting and said, "Well, wait a minute. Why why are we talking about fleet? You know, retail's our business." And this dealer said, "You know, can I direct your eyes to this page in the composite?" Did, did you notice you sold more F-Series pickup trucks through fleet this year than you have retail? 
and I graph that line out and watch that kind of change happen. And it, and it goes along with, I know it's not as prevalent today, but we were dealing with the fear of alternative transportation a few years ago, where what is Uber and Lyft and ride sharing and, uh, you know, autonomous electric public buses coming to market and all these things. And there was also a very big decline in teenagers getting their driver's license. And I look at all these factors and it's like, wait a minute, this might be something that impacts us in the future on the retail side. If individuals aren't going to be out looking for vehicles to have that one car in their garage type thing, what are they going to be doing? And uh, one of those things is company vehicles is companies will buy fleets and provide a vehicle. So based on someone's job, so that to be able to uh, kind of solidify our place in that, in that world that says, okay, we may not sell you a car, but the company that you work for is going to buy 200 Ford escapes off us. And they're going to give you the keys to that, to drive. I, I don't care what the means are to get the car in the driveway. I just want the car in the driveway. So whether we sell it one-on-one -on -one retail, whether we sell it through the fleet, whether we're renting it, whether it's, I was going to say subscription, but that's obviously uh, exposed itself and subscriptions are have pretty much all gone away at this point. Um, I think to a certain extent, I think they've changed. So I think, you know, what you see is, again, a lot of the OEMs, like the manufacturer subscriptions have definitely disappeared. And then I think what's interesting about the modern, the modern subscriptions, you know, Scott Painter, he's the one that founded FAIR. He's, uh, he has autonomy now. And there's a couple others, but I think what's interesting about the new uh, subscriptions, um, and to be clear and to be frank, I was a big hater on subscriptions because as you said, like it didn't pencil. Um, I didn't see how it could make sense, but um, what Scott's doing differently, and just generally speaking, what uh, you know, a few other subscription companies are doing differently is that they're now, they're pretty much creating wait lists and they're only offering like one, two, maybe three SKUs. Yeah. So like, hey, you can only get a Tesla through me. You can only get a Toyota Prius or whatever it may be. And what that allows them to do is to basically, you know, get, build this massive wait list. And if you return your car to me, I just bring it, give it to the next person in line on that wait list. So that car is not sitting, it's not going back to auction. I'm still taking some risk on the quality, but it is an interesting spin. And it makes you wonder like, will that, will that get subscriptions to a point where the companies can be profitable and this is a, becomes a viable business model? I don't know the answer to that, but time will tell. Backtracking for one second. So back to the fleet business. Is this like 10% of your business right now? 5%, 50%? Like what is it roughly? Where 35. Are we at? 35%? 35 to 40. Okay. It's 55% of the pickup trucks. Got it. Oh, that's that's significant. And then what do you guys, how many cars are you guys selling per year, new and used? Um, not including fleet, around 15,000 with fleet, 17,000, 18,000. Got it. Is that mostly around Ohio? I saw you guys are pushing your online sales pretty, again, again, it's on your homepage. It's like right there, a call to action. Like how much of that, you know, how much of the online business are you doing? Uh, you know, actually there's been an uptick the past six months. We, um, we launched our express checkout. We partnered with AutoFi years ago. And um, one of the big advantages we had when the pandemic hit is we were already live. We were trained. We were pushing forward. We were marketing it. It was on TV commercials. We were responding to every email with you know, link and giving those um, convenience options. And uh, we saw a very low take rate when the pandemic hit. And now 
there was even rumors. And I, I know in some states, showrooms were closed. Like online was all they had. Um, so it became a necessity. And that actually is what sparked that market. All of a sudden, people were realizing, wait a minute, I don't need to come to this place of business where all these people work, where there could be exposure. We were meeting people at neutral locations, like the airport parking lot. We'd go to their home. We'd go to their place of business. And during the summer of 2020, we did a few hundred of them. And it was growing. Once like August of 2020 hit and people were less afraid of the virus, they were now having cabin fever. They've been cooped up. Um, we would send them the link and they would like, no, I want to come to you. So then we started retraining them to understand that if they click the link and they start sharing information with us, we can start building our deal. We could get it submitted to the bank. And now when the customer actually came in the dealership, we could really expedite the process. And we could take it to where even if they showed up and they wanted to switch to a different car, we were still averaging less than an hour for them to come in and out. Mm -hmm. Those that did come in to buy the same car, it was like 42 minutes average. And I think that is something that uh, is now becoming more, more and more popular as people are getting busy, they're out doing things. I mean, the world, there's so much going on that, that to be able to tell someone, no, you're not going to be here for four hours. And, you know, here, just click this link and we're going to start sending this out and we're going to, you know, it's going to get submitted to the bag. You're going to see some rates come, come, come back to me and stuff. We can talk about all that when you get here. We just want to make sure the car is the right car for you. And when they show up and the car is what we say it is, um, they test drive it, like it, um, then it really helps just take it from that point to celebrating delivery. Because buying a car should be fun. Whether it's a new car or a used car, there's something emotional there that you want to keep that energy and that, 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 that fun level up. It should be fun buying a car. It shouldn't be sitting at a desk waiting for hours wondering what's going on. So I guess on that note, another thing that I found interesting, uh, which, you know, you see this sometimes, but again, it depends, is that you separate your, it seems like you separate your uh, special finance or you call it your challenge credit into, you know, they call it the credit repair factory. Now, is that, the fact that you do that, right, does, is that what allows you to kind of have this seamless process of, you know, you mentioned like having an online integration where I can get my terms and stuff, kind of like that quote unquote Carvana experience or whatever you want to call it. I buy that car online uh, because, you know, we all know if your credit is not, you know, superior or great, like you're just going to, it's a more uh, lengthy process to get approved for that car. So how do you, how do you balance those two with offering that online experience, but then realizing that some customers just need more handholding through the process? Yeah. And I'm sure you're aware that <clears throat> most banks, when there is questionable credit or challenges or some red flags in an application, they just auto decline. You know, then we get on a phone. We pick up a phone to rehash, and why did the system auto decline this? Oh, here's that one reason. Okay, let's get over that. Here's what it really is. <clears throat> so the way that works is if someone goes on and does an online application, and it's a scenario where they're going to get, and you know, the the response is going to be, um, you know, hey, this is going to take a little extra time, and someone's going to contact you. It goes directly to that department and the credit factory. It does have the, a few individuals that are in our company that truly understand the secondary finance. Um, 
We also have a secondary finance lending arm called Tracer Financial. And we learn a lot from them. We see what applications that they're getting. And we uh, try to at least create an option. I don't want to, you know, that's kind of the goal is never to tell someone no. And we've always been known as a dealership. <laughs> someone will go to another small small dealer that's that's down the road. And based on the credit score and just knowing the amount of work it's going to take to get a deal funded, they'd rather just pass. They will literally tell that customer, have you gone the right no, I, I love this because this is like, uh, it reminds me of Amazon in a way, right? And I'll tell you where, in what sense. Like you guys are taking the, the consumer and you're saying, how can I add value in every possible way so that I can grab the biggest piece of like the gross merchandise value? Yeah. And in, in addition to that, you're also saying, let me take my call centers, right? And you mentioned the, the customs business and let me turn it into a profit center, right? Like Amazon Web Services. It's the, another thing everyone talks about, Exhibit A. You know, Amazon took this thing that was costing them a ton, turned it into an extremely profitable business. Yep. So very, very cool business model. Tell me more about, I want to jump into lending because you just mentioned lending. And again, another very interesting business that you're in. One quick question before we do that, just wrapping up with online sales. So you mentioned, you know, there's a rise, then there was kind of a decline. What percent of your business today is online sales? And when I say online, I mean, someone buys it online, takes delivery at home, doesn't even come to the dealership at all. 5%. It is, you know, people don't hate the brick and mortar dealerships. That was one of those kind of marketing messages that Carvana started early on was, you know, people hate, actually it wasn't Carvana, it was Vroom. Vroom had a TV commercial that talked about how people hate car dealerships. Like, it sucks. Car dealerships suck. And it's not the actual. I think that was the Super Bowl commercial also. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And I, I just had a meeting with the Vroom people with auto fines talking to them about actually listing dealer inventory on their site, working together. Then they came out with that commercial and I didn't return anymore. You're like, I'm out. Done. <laughs> you want to go to war? You don't want to do this. So um, what we found is uh, when you give someone the option, and this is what we started saying on the word track is, yep, looks like we have your completed application on this vehicle. Would you like to schedule a time to take delivery at your home or place of business? Or would you like to come here It'll take about 45 minutes to celebrate taking delivery. And 99% of the responses were, oh, if I'm going to be there for 45 minutes, I'd love to come there. They want to come here. They just don't want to be trapped here. They don't want, you know, because of all the stereotypes, because of when I was trained in 2001 on how to sell a car, someone jokingly told me to take the keys of the trade and throw it on the roof of the building so they can't leave. You know, like you literally were trained to trap people. There is grace in time. The longer you can take, the longer you can draw out the process, get control of your customer, drag them through the mud, that's how you'll make the most money. And that is completely the opposite now today. Now there's right. I was going to say, but like the, the elephant in the room is that to a certain extent that used to be true. Yeah. And now it's speed and transparency to be able to offer a product that is identified online as it is in person with all factual, authentic information, they just want to sign and drive. They just want to be done. Yep. And so and so now there's kind of gross in that. And it is in the service department too. We started monitoring the time between when we inspect a vehicle and when we uh, give someone a quote. But the longer you take in that process, the more apt they are to say no or decline repairs. 
Mm. So it's quite the opposite. Yeah. You can walk right into a service lounge after someone sat down for two minutes and say, Hey, car dealership guy, I just looked at your car and these are the three major things that need to be fixed right away with your signature. We go ahead and get these started a hundred percent of the time. They just, they, they say yes and go because it doesn't feel like we're looking for things to try to make more money on. And it's the same way in uh, sales. As someone comes in, they sit down, they do everything online. You print a proposal off and you come down the desk and you say, hey, Mr. Customer, here's the car, just as you saw online. You drove it. Everything is exactly as you said it would. Here's the price you saw online. Here's everything else. Disclose right here. Here's a couple payment options. Which one do you prefer? They're going to sign in circle and say, how long until I get out of here? Yeah. And there, do you think, what do you think online sales looks like by, you know, by 2030? I mean, do you think it continues rising across the board or do you think that what changes is actually the in-store experience continues improving, bringing more people in to the actual establishment as opposed to doing everything remote, remotely? We think about it in the world of new cars and they're updating models like every two years. Mm-hmm. So there are those cases where, I mean, I, you know, let's take the, the outsider Tesla, for example. The Model Y, really none of their body styles have changed in nine years. They have not re- redesigned a model at all. The Model Y is the same car. They've just been focusing how to build it cheaper and faster. And now with the cracked aluminum subframes, we'll see how the quality gets affected. But they've created a marketplace to where you know what that car is. You've seen that car on the road. You've probably driven one before. There's nothing else special or unique you're going to find out. People feel confident going online and ordering a Tesla and just having it delivered to them. Uh-huh. When it comes to some of the other models, uh, use like 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 Ford, for example, we just uh, started receiving the new 2024 Mustangs. They look different. They drive different. Um, for someone to go online and just buy that car, having never seen it in person or drove it, doesn't seem like the the general consumers are 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 jumping on that ship just yet. Um, I think about the world of used cars. Like, I guess if something has such an extreme guarantee, probably why Carvana has, you know, seven day return policy, um, CarMax with their 30 days, because that's the only way to give someone the peace of mind of being like, no, 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 this, this used car with 40,000 miles that you can look at paperwork on the vehicle history, but you've never seen it. You've never driven it. You don't know how touched up and Photoshopped those pictures are online. Uh, I think that there's, I think it's harder for the used car world to be okay with just buying something like that. I think that they really want to be able to, to, to touch it and feel it and drive it and smell it. Well, your Tesla example, I mean, I think you're bringing up an interesting point though, right? If Tesla is not changing up their body styles yet, you know, the sales are growing. What does that tell us about legacy manufacturers? Are they changing body styles too much? Is that where they're competing on the looks? Whereas, you know, Tesla is sort of trying to focus on, I only want an EV type of driver. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think Tesla's created a status symbol with their brand where there's, you know, there's a cool factor. Think about you know, high schoolers today. You ask a high schooler what car they want to drive, they're going to say Tesla because it's this, uh, it's this outsider, as I like to say, right? The startup that is not a automaker. They're doing things different. They're going against the grain. And there's kind of this cool factor there that people want to be in that niche club that just wants it because it's different. Um, 
I would hate to see every car maker turn into Tesla. I would hate for every car on the road to be the same body style it was for the past nine years. Then it gets, then it's going to get boring. Then it's going to look like these projections we see of the future in a hundred years where every one of those model cars on the road all looks, all look the same or the flying cars all look the same. Um, I love the style and design part of our business. That's what creates the emotion. <clears throat> you know, the performance of the powertrains, emotion, the style and design and the way the sectionness of a car or SUV looks like that creates emotion. And I'm a big, I see the, spar I see the sparkle in your eye. Yeah. <laughs> I, I dig it's where that creative part comes from. That's the well, dude, you're a creative. I mean, you're, you're a creative. It's very clear yeah. based on everything I've seen. And you are a creative and it's important to you. I think other people don't give a shit. It's not important to them. I think there's a market for both. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I buy it. It makes sense to me. I just got a Google chat from our Ford division. They have a red four-door Bronco that, that just came in and they want to send it over to Rabbit, but they want me to design, like they want my kind of say in it. Oh my like, God, dude, you're the, you're the opposite of me. Fires, graphics, like. Yeah, no, you're, you're the opposite of me. Like I would, um, you know, I look at the cars and stuff and to me it's, uh, I have just like zero emotions towards the, you know, to me, it's literally metal. And I always tell people, I'm like, I'm, I'm not a car guy. Like I'm a business first guy that is, happens to be in the, in the car business that, you know, loves it. But I was never, um, I never, I never got into it. So yeah. I love I, it I first. I love it <laughs> most now. And I love the industry and the business. Like I love the car business. It's so much fun. It's not it for being a heart. You got to be thick skinned. You got to have a short memory. You got to be able to think deeply. You got to be able to stay on your toes. Uh, connect with people and really every aspect of business school, whether it's finance, marketing, merchandising, like it, it, it encompasses everything. And when they all work together in gel, when our accounting department knows how many used cars we have out today and what our goal is for the month and, and people are rallying around those things and you feel that energy and emotion, it's a really fun business. It sure is. Yeah. I want to, I, very important topic. Um, I get asked about a ton and it's just hot right now, auto lending. So we, I, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So you have an auto lending business, like give us an overview. What is this lending business? Um, you know, what type of consumers do you focus on? Like, you know, how much business are you doing annually? Like, just give us a quick overview and know what I've been. So the finance company is a, uh, very much a subprime. It is a state maximum interest rate. In fact, our own retail dealerships do between five and 10 deals a month with them. And it is kind of a catch all for, you know, those that have been turned down by the other banks. So mm -hmm. right now we're really positive because some of those bigger banks that have just been buying anybody and everybody with huge advances, little money down, little fees, um, are now starting to realize that their portfolios aren't looking too good. And repos are on the rise, delinquencies are on the rise, and we are seeing a much bigger uptick in applications through the Tracer Financial Arm than we were even one or two months ago. It is uh, so it goes to show us that that some of these other banks aren't buying as deep. Now the Santander's of the world, Cap One, they're still buying strong and deep. From a retail standpoint, the number one issue we're having is negative equity. Because two and a half years ago, if you came in to buy a used car, a new car, and you were paying the market prices then, your car is depreciated, plus the market has dropped. And uh, this past Saturday, we had 
to put in perspective, the used car factory uh, sells generally about 50 cars on a Saturday, sometimes 60. And they'll look at 100 to 120 deals. They had 10 deals on Saturday that all had more than 10 grand in negative equity. We've wow. never seen that on a Saturday. So we're seeing the negative equity uptick. Advances have been shortened to where two, two years ago, because the books weren't keeping up with the market, you know, the guidebooks that they based their lending off of, we were seeing uh, you know, advances of 140, 150%. And they were okay buying them because there was money. People were making payments and there was cash flow. So they were okay with the larger advances. Now they have definitely cut that back to where it was before the pandemic. And if the bank is saying oh, 115%, 110%, they're not stretching beyond that. Can't call them and be real nice and be like, hey, I just need 117%. <laughs> you need to go get more money down. And and people people don't have more money down. No, but they're shopping and they want to buy. The, the demand is in the marketplace. If they don't have the massive negative equity, and you know, then when it comes to payments, because the interest rates. I mean, we're looking at what is it right now? Average prime rate across the boards, like in the nines, were eight nine nine five. Yeah, and even uh, one of our lenders we use for the majority of our loans, a used two thousand twelve. You're paying fourteen and a half percent. 12, 12 to 14%. That's an 800 beacon. Wait, so just say that again. So 800 credit score, 800 beacon is paying, you're saying 12 to 14%. And on what cars are you seeing at? Like a, like an eight or nine year old used car. Wow. So between that depreciation and repairs, I mean, it's, you're, it's not, you're pretty much in a hole. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's banks saying, you know, we're going to give somebody, you know, a first time buyer program. It's a high interest rate and they're capped at $400 a month, but they have to buy something with under 60,000 miles. Is it? That car doesn't exist. Yeah. Can't take 20%. Especially today. That much money and get a $400 payment unless you're, you know, a 12, 15 grand car. And by the time you find those, they have more than 60,000 miles for sure. Have you, have you ever had any like crazy, crazy marketing ideas that you just didn't pursue? I mean, you're obviously, you know, you like operate very aggressively. What, have you ever had something yeah, like that? I got I mean, one that I got. I'm, just, one I'm, just, that, I'm curious to kind of what goes through. I one that I couldn't get past. What is it? Give it a thought. The, the powers that be, because I, you know, there's these two oracles I'll call them. Or okay. We call them Statler and Waldorf because they like to sit in the top of the theater and heckle me when I'm doing my job. But um, we did a commercial about ten years ago for Motor Trend certified used cars called Pizza Ship, and Pizza Ship is on YouTube. Pizza Ship has a lot of views. Pizza Ship is hilarious because <clears throat> it's kind of a run on like, we don't sell pieces of <laughs> And it shows a pizza delivery boy and a beat up Cavalier kind of rubbing the scratches out, putting it for sale sign. And the old concept is you won't find any pizza ships here, only quality certified used cars. Okay. So that was a quality based ad. When we started getting into the world of digital retailing, which at the end of the day, the whole purpose is to save time. Uh, I wanted to create a campaign called clock suckers that when you go to other dealerships that don't have this digital retailing capability, they're there to waste your time. And they're a bunch of clock suckers. <laughs> and uh, I just couldn't get that push through. They just, oh. you know, that's just too close. Family business. We've never included, you know, Drugs, alcohol, sex, or anything in our ads to sell. We don't it's provocative. Yeah, it's I definitely, say, uh, it's edgy, it's edgy. TV. We'll put it on, 
know, Cartoon Network or something of the late night shows. But no. I, I saw your What the Ford one. That was good too. Yeah, that was, that was good. Little, that was a little play. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Fords were arriving. You know what? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Ford. So I want to. I wanted. I wanted to take a tangent. Holy into, Chevy. Holy. Yeah. I didn't see that one, but that's. I'm sure it's good as well. Yeah. Tell me more about. So before we started the pod, we kind of just started having a conversation. I didn't realize we're not, you know, we didn't record yet. Um, so that was that. But let's kind of, let's go back to that for a second. We we're talking about your uncle. Uh, your uncle, Rhett, was the NADA, National Auto Dealers Association chairman um, in 2020. For anyone that doesn't know what that means, it, it means, you know, in this industry, you're, you're, you're a big shot if you're the NADA chairman. <laughs> you have a lot of, you have a lot of juice. Let's put it like that. But your uncle, I would assume, is very close with, Again, auto manufacturer, the CEOs and whatnot. Uh, just give us a little kind of sneak peek into the politics. You know, a couple months ago, there's an article that came out from Slate, I want to say. And it was like talking about, I don't know, like NADA, like the, the parties at NADA or I, I really don't remember the exact uh, you know context of what it was said in the article. But I remember speaking about NADA and just kind of like behind the scenes. And I'm curious to hear from you, like what is happening right now in that world? with the politics with the manufacturers. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of the, you know, some are going full EV, some are, you know, kind of anti-EV. Some are, you know, like Nissan just announced they're going for this like hybrid EV and internal combustion. They're kind of all over. Yes. So what is happening right now in that world? And just give us, you know, a sneak peek behind the scenes of you, what you know and through your uncle as well. Yeah, no, what I what I know is I, I try to suck as much information from him as I can to find out what's really going on. Because you'll hear things in dealer meetings and you'll hear ideas coming up. And obviously, we've been making a lot of investment in the world of EV, for example, brand new facilities and showrooms. And I've got my opinion on what I think the future looks like. And I don't feel like we need these gigantic 40, 50,000 square foot showrooms that are two stories tall and the way that their facility guidelines are forcing us to build them because we just talked about the world of pickup and delivery and remote sales and even in service with mobile service and what's going on there, there's going to be fewer consumers needing to drive to our dealerships in the future. We're going to have more capability to go to them, to go get their car, let them stay where they're at and comfortable. Um, and then some of the investments in the you know EV side also, we will have uh, between really our two main properties. We have 37 charging stations. We're at 50 by the end of the year. We don't have 50 electric cars available for sale even. We definitely don't have 50 people in the marketplace wanting to buy an electric car today. Like there is, there's some markets, I'm sure in California and Florida and Texas and New York, there's other smile states that have a lot more demand. We're in central Ohio. There's a lot of rural area around us and farms and things, and there's no charging infrastructure yet. And it's really a niche product. And I'm saying that as an advocate because I ordered a Mustang Mach-E GT Performance Edition when it first came out. I drove it for two months. I loved it. I missed having a pickup bed. I like to do things on weekends and use the utility part of the truck. Uh, when the F-150 Lightning came out, I got one of the first ones. I drove it. I put 10,000 miles on it. I loved it. I turned it back in about three months ago. and We sold it. And I've been driving a gas truck since. And I... I just told our used car manager yesterday, just go find me a used Lightning. I love the EV. I love the performance. I love not having to stop at a gas station every week. I just plug it into my house. I'm good to go all day. But um, the general public isn't there yet. 
the hype that was created through media and marketing and just kind of willing this thing into fruition. These manufacturers just trying to announce, this is what we're building now. This is the future. This is what you need to buy. Everybody get on board has slowly fizzled away the past eight, nine months. Do you think Ford is going to backpedal on their, on their plans? They say they're not. They say, but, and, and you know what, if they've already built the plants, if they already have, you know, they're like the F-150 Lightning, for example, it's a great truck. It's just the affordability is the you know, issue. They, they don't have a price point for the, the average American yet. Um, Tesla figured that out a few years ago. If they can build this Model Y for 17 grand cheaper and be able to, to present a product that's under 50 grand that has a 300 mile range that does what does what everyone needs i think a lot more people would be in tune to it but you look at what the real desirable evs are on the market they're 60 70 80 90 thousand dollars and uh it's usually someone getting it as a second vehicle or they have it as their daily driver but they still have that ice vehicle in the garage or for road trips or backup because it's not really it's not mainstream at least in columbus ohio it's not mainstream yet at all and so for us to make those investments, we don't want them to completely backpedal. Ford needs to continue on. Chevy needs to continue on. Nissan is doing a good job. Continue on with what? With going full, full EV? EVs to continue with the battery technology so they last longer, so they have better range, so that they're safer. Um, to figure out from a production standpoint, you know, get the prices of the batteries down and then figure out how to produce them for less than an internal combustion engine. There's like 10,000 less moving parts. It should be easier. Mm -hmm. And once they get that figured out, I think you'll see a lot more of the general public accept EVs as commonplace. Uh, at least where we live, it's still it's still a niche it's still a niche thing that there's not as much hype as there was. That's for sure. So, what predictions in like say you know two to three years? Not even going too far out, but what do you think changes with the uh, major manufacturers based again on your kind of insider insights here? What do you see is going to change from where we're at today with the manufacturers? Like, what are the biggest biggest movers and shakers? The biggest movers would be, um, like I said, whoever solves that affordability issue, whoever can start coming up with some smaller cars and SUVs that are sub thirty thousand dollars. And there's nothing that's sub twenty grand anymore. You know, I think a few years ago there was like twenty different models that now there's one. The Mitsubishi Mirage is the only thing that's actually under. And even that's gone. Even that's yeah. gone. And even that's gone. Now they're full SUV. So I think getting back into the production, I think you'll see, you know, Honda and Toyota have really good next couple of years. Honda and Toyota didn't jump into and get in so involved in the EV world. They've been patiently waiting for the technology to improve, for the battery production to improve. But they have highly efficient internal combustion engines. They have some hybrid options. And if they start, you know, building some cars and small SUVs that are at the lower, that are at the lower price point. I think you'll see some big volume be pushed to those brands. Um, I think you'll see that fleet and commercial world, whether it's Ford or GM or Dodge Sprinter, like keep that, keep that production strong because the world of people sitting on their ass and wanting things delivered to them is not going away. So I'm big on vans. <laughs> That's a good I way to put it. <laughs> I love vans. I love transit vans, Sprinter vans, Ram vans, Chevy Express vans. Give us all the vans because there's always someone that wants to buy a van because right now there's somebody sitting on their couch somewhere waiting on that van to pull in their driveway and drop off a toothbrush. Like 
just ridiculous where we're, where we've become as people of just sheer, sheer, sheer laziness. Because of the laziness, the van markets are incredible. And then you get the money upfitting them. And then you get the service on them too. So I'm a big fan of those. Um, I think you'll see those worlds grow. I think you'll see the manufacturers put more emphasis into fleet and commercial, um, especially on the EV side, because government regulations are going to continue to push companies to invest in EVs and give them reasons to do that or penalize them if they're all gas. Other than that, the, the one that breaks my heart is what I'm seeing happen with the sports car world and all the performance cars. And I've always been a, been a big fan of the big, big horsepower engines. And now, you know, Camaro and now, you know, Chevy announcing that Camaro is no longer going to be what it is. It's going EV, you know, Mopar pulling out the big, you know, Hemis and demons and Hellcats and red eyes and all this stuff. And they're going to be going EV. Ford hasn't quite said that they're going to do that, but you know, just to be safe, we took one of the last GT 500s and we put it in our collection because will 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 they build another 770 horsepower naturally aspirated Mustang again? Now I know they're building this car called the GTD that's coming out, but that is a totally separate conversation. There's only going to be a few hundred of those built or three hundred thousand dollars. The collectors are going to bubble wrap them and keep them. You know, there's um. Something like that, but for the everyday person to be able to come in and buy, you know, five, six hundred horsepower naturally aspirated, I don't think you'll see those in three years. I think you're going to see more performance hybrid powertrains, more of it just going right to EVs because it's so easy to make them fast. It's so easy to just take that 100% torque and efficiency and make them accelerate like they're freaking Indy cars on the street. So, so what brands, what brands would you say you're most bullish on now? Um, you know, we have Ford and GM, Hyundai, Kia, Nissan, Mazda, Genesis. We are in a truck market. We know trucks. We have a good truck database. I'd love to add Dodge Ram trucks into the mix. Uh, Wranglers. We've seen some really good business coming out of the Broncos and our Bronco upfitting. Uh, we lead Bronco trail drives to offer Bronco events to be able to really bring the Wranglers in too, because that's who started it. and love to sell those and then um sprinter would be a long shot that would probably take a mercedes franchise which um so everything you're listing right now you're pretty much saying like with the right opportunity you would jump on these brands you're are you concerned about the operational issues you know stellantis having too much inventory oversupply blah 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 you know kind of dec some declining blue sky values like are you concerned about any of that no i think it helps us when we're buying right now yeah because as a buyer, I guess if, if you believe in a brand long term, it's great. Yeah, because as the margins have now compressed and normalized on those brands, I mean Stellantis is a big company. They've got a lot of money. They're not they're not going to go away. They if they don't if they're producing too many based on demand and they're having to pull into the C and I department and put rebates on the hoods of cars and do the things they don't want to do, that that's only going to happen for so much time before you hear about a management change. Or you hear about a model line change or a production change. They're they're gonna always adapt. They're working every day to try to fix some of these problems. I think coming out of the pandemic, coming out of last year, I think they all had crystal balls to really try to guess and forecast what was gonna happen this year. And some of them got a little over their skis, they started overproducing again. But that's been the cycle for a hundred years too. Uh -huh. Is demand gets high, they crank up production, they try to fill the lots. 
then the demand, demand gets low for a little supply rebates yep. on them and then they sell them all then they go ramp up production again and you know whoever figures out really that crystal ball of how many they need to produce and get up a better guesstimate allows the manufacturer to make more money allows the dealer to balance inventory better because it really comes down to mix like there's we we've got a 60 70 day supply of new fords new chevys new gmcs and i'm happy with that but it's not what we want it's not what we really want to have on the ground we're just we're taking what they're building but it's not necessarily the right product if that makes sense. well what are they giving you what product are they giving you are they giving you like only evs or mostly or what? no um you can get evs we're, we're not getting as many they're not ohio is not being fed with evs the way the rest of the is. is especially with the like the um hyundai and kia side you know, they're, they're advertising those on TV and people are asking about them, but they're dribbling in slowly. And even for a while, like the Ionic, we couldn't even deliver it. We had someone that we tried to dealer trade and sell them on and we, we couldn't actually punch the sale because we weren't a state allowed to sell them. Yet. So there, it's been kind of a slow roll out there. Before, before we wrap up, I, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about um, software, automotive software you're investing in. So I'm really curious, you know, kind of two-part question here, but, you know, where do you see the business in five to 10 years? And more specifically, like what type of software are you actually investing in right now that you think is going to, you know, grow and be a more meaningful part of the business? Gosh, in five years from now, it's going to, well, I mean, the whole software, the automotive software world has been consolidating like wildfire. And there is any viable product that comes to market that starts to gain traction is going to get bought up. What I look for right now is where this focus five years ago, or six years ago was sales. It's really fixed ops today. And service is what's going to make or break our future. Having a service process, having a quality relationship with our customers on their terms, being able to use the telematics and vehicle information, using mobile service techs, being able to do pickup and delivery and being able to combine all those things into one tool that communicates with the customer, communicates with the technician, communicates with parts, communicates with the logistics and the dispatch, the transport, the shuttle. There's all these moving parts that um, the focus in our industry has so heavily been on sales. There are some great sales CRMs out there. There's some CRMs with digital retailing involved that are slick, that the salespeople have great user interfaces and we can sell someone a car. But once they take the delivery of the car, that's when the game starts now. That's what's going to really hold us in the future is how well can we take care of them and service their car? I learned 10 years ago with, uh, we were partnering with Valvoline to try to do a Valvoline oil change package to where I didn't even want them to come back to our dealership. If they live more than 10 miles from here, because the average person isn't willing to drive 10 miles to have maintenance done. And 67% of who we sell to are more than 10 miles from us. Yeah. So Smart. Yeah. Let's keep them in our world. Let's keep communicating with them and say, hey, by the way, about the car here, well, your first oil change is free. You can come back here or you can go to any Valvoline and switch oil. And through that, I learned out through a report of why we don't want to do that because the percentage of people that defect from car dealerships once their factory warranty expires is astronomical. Like that's the only reason they're really coming back here is because they have a warranty. And, and the second that warranty's done is expired. Now they're going to wherever the closest place is and in the independent shop, third party shop or whatever, the mom and pop 
So what are we doing to create that life cycle to really to keep to keep them in the ecosystem? Back to service to fixing it right the first time, doing it fast, setting expectations. Have you ever tried to pick up a phone and call a service advisor at a dealership? Impossible. Any dealership, pick a random one and call. It's, it's tough. Ask it's tough. I have. I have. <laughs> in a service department. We haven't even figured it out yet, but it is a horrible experience. You're right. Ford did a report a couple of years ago called uh, Dipped in Blue. And and a and a consumer, when, once they go from the moment of realizing they need to bring their car, that something's wrong with their car, whether a check engine light pops on, it makes a noise, it dies, something happens. Between that moment and the moment we engage them in our service drive, they have eight pain points that happen. And it's a it's a miserable thing. There's nothing fun about having to bring a car into service. So uh, when I think about software and technology, I think about how can we create something. And I've been working with a couple companies. There's nothing really that's come to fruition because what I've seen happen with the few that I've started talking to is, is what I'm explaining to them is this big, grandiose, like, communication system that does all these things and has inspection reports built in and talks to techs and talks to parts and talks to parts runners and does all these things. And they all get to a certain part and start building it out. And then they're like, well, wait a minute, this one part doesn't even exist in the industry. Let's just take that to market. Sorry, Rick, we're not building the rest. And I'm like, but at the end of the day, there's a customer sitting somewhere that just wants their car fixed. And we're doing a terrible job of communicating with them because we're using the same systems that we've had for years that have all been sales-based and service as an afterthought. And we've got to flip that in our industry and make service be the forethought. And then if you do service really well and they keep coming back to your service department, oh, wait, it's really easy to sell them a car at that point when it's time for that to happen. So that's what I'm really big on right now. Well. Rick, I don't want to be a, a clock sucker. Right. You're going to take <laughs> like that, that. And do it. Listen, let's go. You see, there you go. Let's partner, go buy some dealerships, and I'll make sure to put it on the air whenever you want. Hey, listen, there's going to be a day where we're going to have car dealership guy dealerships. So that's going to happen one way or another. So maybe this is it. <laughs> I'm down. Um, any closing thoughts? Um, no, I guess for the dealers out there, we talked a lot about marketing, innovation, the fun things that we do with paid advertising. The biggest thing to remind everybody always is give back to your community, get involved. I, I saw you're very active in philanthropy. And by the way, I saw a picture of you from like 2011, I want to say. I forget where I saw maybe your Instagram or something, but I was, it was pretty interesting. I'm like, you know, before we wrap up, what got you into philanthropy? Like, it looked like a fairly young age. Um, it just seems like, you know, at that age, most guys, their head, you know, their minds in the gutter. And, and not saying yours wasn't, <laughs> but, you know, it seems like yours was a bit more balanced than that. So tell us about, uh, and I'm saying that again, tongue in cheek. Well, it all begins with, uh, you know, number one, I have a PhD, um, which means Papa has a dealership. There you go. <laughs> and I'm very blessed and lucky to be in the position that I am. I had the honor and privilege of kind of taking over a company that was established. It was a part of the community. Central Ohio, the state of Ohio has treated us really good for 70 years. And so... It was taught to me in my late 20s by one of my bosses that basically sat me down and said, you know, as you're becoming a business leader, you have a duty and a responsibility to your community also. Right about that same time, I read a report, and this is the only kind of greedy, selfish side of it, where it talked about millennials. And I hate that term because every generation has a rebellious kind of angle to them. 
but it talks about how millennials were more interested in what a company does for the community than even what the prices of their products are. That they're going to go check two things. Is this the car I want to buy? Is this the company that I want to buy it from? Mm-hmm. We were doing things as a company anonymously. We would give money. We would support things when we weren't letting it be known. So we hired a PR firm called Bell Communication. Bell is awesome. All females. They're scrappy. They're really good at what they do. And they really help us get that message out. Um, and then I personally, 12 years ago, went through some personal changes. Um, I'm a gratefully recovering alcoholic. And through going through treatment and the steps and learning about service work and giving back, to make my life better. That's when I started doing work myself and volunteering and feeling that fulfillment and, and working with, um, I was on the board of a charity called a kid again, that does life, that does monthly adventures for children with life threatening conditions. Did that for five years. I was the chairman at the end. I just had the privilege of stepping on the Ronald McDonald house, um, um, of central Ohio here. It was going through an expansion. It'll be the largest Ronald McDonald house in the world. What they do for kids and families, so as a company, as a family, we identified the pillars, um, what, what what we truly care about based on our values, and it's families and children, it's veterans, it's it's arts and entertainment. There's things that we kind of focus on, and it has just it's been one of the greatest things that I've ever done because the more I give back and help others without any expectation of anything in return for myself, because I have everything I need today. I got three healthy kids. I got a nice roof over my head. I got a fridge full of food. I got a car with a bank of gas in the garage. Like I got everything I need. So to try to make my world a better place has in turn given me gifts um, that literally have saved my life. Because when the pandemic started, the Red Cross couldn't put on blood drives because they didn't have social distancing in the blood mobiles. And I literally called the head of the Red Cross in Central Iowa and said, we have an empty showroom. We, we just moved our fleet division out of this building where Rabid Customs is now, and that showroom is empty. Would you like to put on a blood drive here? And they're like, oh, we would love that. I said, but I want to be first in line. I want to give blood first because I got meetings. I got work. I'm a busy, important person. Let me jump everybody in line. So I showed up early. They pricked my finger, and they said, we don't want your blood. So what do you mean you don't want my blood? I got Viking blood. Everyone wants my blood. <laughs> I said, no, we don't want your blood. The iron's too low. So I called my doctor, and I'm like, why is my iron too low? He said, I don't know. Get in here. Started going through blood tests, end up at a cancer center, getting colonoscopies and things. Found out I had colon cancer and had surgery, got rid of it, you know, did the, did the deal, recovered and looked back. And it was like, man, like giving back and trying to help others literally saved my life. So it's something that is I'm very passionate about and I'll continue to do the rest of my life. And um, it's one of our five. Uh, oh, man, you gave me the chills, dude. You have a hell of a story. Oh, uh, dude, first of all, I mean, really respect and appreciate your candor. Yeah. And um, I'll end off with just saying, you know, the other day I was, I was playing um, a pickup soccer game. I do this every week. And I was, I, was, I was telling one of my buddies a story. And he looks at me then. He puts, he puts his arm on my shoulder. And he goes, and of course, he says my real name. He says, CDG. He says, I f***ing love you, dude. So, Rick, I f***ing love you, dude. That was a great story, man. And um, seriously, like, very, gave me the chills. Yeah. Brother, um, last thing is uh, for anyone that wants to get in touch with you, uh, where, where can people find out more about Rikar yourself? How can people get in touch? Give us the plug. Uh, Rikard.com is our website. For me personally, Twitter, at, at Rick Rikard. I'm on there. It's me. Um, respond to messages. Um, Instagram, the same thing. LinkedIn, but uh, you'll find a link tree there and actually send me an email because that link tree uh, or that... Uh, 
LinkedIn inbox is just a cesspool. It's just, just I, I don't even. It's a mess. Do not it's a mess. mess. <laughs> it's a petri dish. There is just literally just cold call after cold call trying to sell me things. Even though in my bio, it's like, please don't sell me things here. Send me an email. I never get an email. I know. And thank you for. All right, my brother. And I appreciate the information. I love following. I I learn a lot following you and subscribing and all that. And now I get to see what the pace looks like and I, I get to keep that hidden. So I love it. <laughs> My man. Appreciate you, dude. Talk to you. Always. All right, man. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.